Welcome to The Learning Curve. This is Gerard Robinson. You are with us for another week where things that are interesting, fun, sometimes weird, and sometimes even odd come up as topics of conversation. Not because we want to be different, it's because the subject of education <laughs> is ubiquitous. And I already have the laughter. I think we are a little bit weird sometimes, Gerard. I don't know. Exactly. People <laughs> think weird is weird, and it doesn't have to be. It could just be whimsical. How are you? We'll go with that. I'm doing well. I, you know, I can't complain. It's a good week. The children seem to be learning a little bit. We're, we're, we're moving along. Everything's, everything's okay. Everybody's healthy. So can't complain. It's National Charter Schools Week. We'll talk about that in a bit, but hey, good stuff. Yep. Yeah. I want to give a quick shout out during National Charter School Week to, um, uh, um, Somebody I'm a very big fan of is Sam Duell, a colleague of mine at Excel and Ed, and he's been writing some great blogs. But, but we will we will get to that. There's a lot of news to talk about uh, this week. I don't I don't know, Jared. I don't watch um, the briefings on television, or I, I occasionally listen to things on the radio. But I'm sort of increasingly on a media blackout, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Are you watching these daily briefings with um, with Dr. Fauci? No, I saw the first two and I haven't watched any more. And that's not to say anything against him or the administration. I just stopped watching most television and particularly domestic news for the last three months. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, Netflix. But um, (laughs) it's just... It's just a little, it's just a little much. I do have a great colleague at work who, um, who I rely upon to tell me like if there are things I really need to know in the news other than the things that I'm supposed to know for my job, but there you go. So, well, my story of the week, actually, though, this is, this is one, of course, you know, a lot in the news about schools, but, um, but Dr. Fauci (laughs) came out and said what a lot of people didn't want to hear this week. Um, so, you know, everybody's talking about, I mean, we're seeing a lot of great work in the education space with various organizations um, talking about what reopening is going to look like, what the fall is going to look like for schools. Really thoughtful work going on. Um, you know, most recently, a report out of Johns Hopkins today with Chiefs for Change, mm-hmm. one out of AEI, Excel and Ed is, is doing really good work around this. So there's there's a lot out there. But what Fauci came out and said was like, slow your roll, people. You know, like calm it down. And he said he thinks, for example, going back to school, be it higher ed or he said he think it's going to be a bridge too far. And I think it's it's an interesting moment because a lot of folks are, you know, a lot of parents, I think are just like hopeful that none of this is true. <laughs> Those of us who who live in this world are are sort of trying to plan for every single scenario. Um, so this story, you know, I, it doesn't matter which news outlet because it's in all, but let's, I'm just going to quote Fauci here because he said, um, you know, I would, I would tell folks that the idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the reentry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bridge too far. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about this story, Gerardo, and thinking about what Dr. Fauci is saying, um, and I'm thinking about all the work that's going on with these various scenarios for back to school. One of the things that I am really longing for is if we're all going to admit that some sort of online learning, hybrid learning, it, remote learning is going to continue to take place in any capacity. Um, I'm waiting for the quality conversation. 
I'm really waiting to think for folks to start putting out there like, okay, if this is going to be a a new normal, a halfway to new normal, whatever, what are we really going to do to assess quality? And I say that as a member of two, because, uh, you know, I need more stuff to do school boards. And um, and that's an issue that we're we're tackling at the board level. It's sort of like we're doing what we can do right now, but we all seem to know that um, that it's you know, it's constantly getting better. We're constantly trying to work toward better. But if we have to do this thing in the fall again, that what's going on now, I would probably say everywhere isn't going to be acceptable. So I'm eager for all of us, you know, here's a call to all of our wonky friends. Like, let's get out there and, well, first of all, call us if you're talking about quality. And second of all, um, you know, let's talk about it a little bit more. What do you think? This is an interesting dynamic regarding public safety and public confidence. So we have a lot of conversation about public safety, which all of us support, national, state, and local. When I listen to, or when I at least look online to see what is said at the national level, and then I pay attention to what my local public health official uh, has to say, or local school board, uh, it's not always the same. Uh, Yes, they both speak to the idea of public safety, But we're really trying to figure out at what point do we take the first step? And this is where the public confidence will come in. We know that people are are anxious. We know that people have concern. I know I fall into both camps. But at some point, we have to get at least a nod toward normalcy. We may never go back to what we were, but we don't expect to stand here too much longer. So um, I'm just watching it play out. I'm hearing that possibly our school uh, will not open as well, or many schools in uh, both the city and the county uh, will not open. And if they do, maybe it's a hybrid model. A couple of days in, three days off. We don't know. But I think until there's a realization that the public confidence is going to come from the local level and move up, it's going to be really hard for people to take the public health message that seriously somewhere they have to meet in the middle. And I just think right now it's been much more of a national focus when the real work is local. And that's where the confidence uh, question comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. You talked about national charter school week, and this is the week. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate the wonderful work of the schools that are educating 3.3 million students across the country, which started off uh, in the early 90s uh, in the state of Minnesota, as well as California and uh, the state pioneer state of Massachusetts, as an experiment for teachers who wanted to practice their craft a little differently. It's changed into a 20-plus social movement uh, that we haven't seen in American history in a very long time, where regular people decided to sit around a table, sit inside of faith-based institution sometime around a bar and ask three really (laughs) simple questions. Uh, What kind of education do we want our children to have? Are they getting that education now? And what can I do to make it better? And so this was really a a, a teacher-driven movement in California and Minnesota. The original charter laws uh, only allowed teachers to create charter schools. And I think that was important. Uh, They were the ones who said, hey, we are the ones in the classroom. We want to make a difference. As time moved on, we opened up the doors to parents and families. Uh, There are charter school uh, uh, laws that say X percentage of 
family members must sign on to a charter petition in order for it to go before an authorizing body. We now have charter management organizations, which are the nonprofits. We have uh, EMOs, education management organizations, which are the for-profits, a much smaller segment of the market, but I believe an important part that should uh, remain there and even grow. We now have uh, traditional public school teachers who have either left the traditional public schools to go into charter schools to work. We also have people who retired and decided to come back and become administrators and teachers. Uh, like any uh, public sector option, there are uh, users and abusers, and we've had to close some of those schools as a result of that. Uh, we've also had to uh, you know, really rethink the idea of what it means to be a charter movement versus a reform effort within the system. So this is just a really good time for us just to reflect on how far we've come uh, since 1990 uh, to realize that, you know, for example, President Bill Clinton was the first sitting president to create what we now have as Charter School Week, but also the first person president to create the charter school office uh, within the Department of Education, which has played a tremendous role in funding uh, schools and networks, which has allowed for the growth of charter schools across the country. From President uh, Clinton uh, to President Trump, there has been support for charter schools, uh, varying levels of support, questions about accountability, but nonetheless a belief that they should be here to stay. And this charter school week uh, is in a election year, and so it will find its way into the conversation one way or another. And I'm just glad to not only be a part of uh, the movement, but I've had a chance to help found as a founding board member two charter schools and was a charter school authorizer in Georgia and have a number of friends who sent their children to uh, charter schools. So this is a moment not just for charter school students, families, teachers, and philanthropists to celebrate, but it's really a celebration for public education. It is one of many choices within the system, whether it's magnet schools, um, exam schools, or hybrid models. Um, charter schools are here to stay, and this is just a week to celebrate. And I want to thank uh, our colleague Nina Reese for her uh, years of leadership at the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. Also, our friend uh, uh, Greg uh, Richmond in Chicago for his work and for all the hard working school board members who have actually authorized the majority of charter schools in this country, but also the municipalities, the states and the universities who play a role as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'd like to, I'd just like to chime in and say, you know, I think at times it feels like, I mean, cheers to Nina and, and thank you to Greg. And I'm, I'd like to give a shout out to City on a Hill Charter Public Schools, where I'm the chairperson of the board and they feel very fortunate to be so one of the first charter public schools in the, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which means it was one of the first in the country because we were, mm -hmm. you know, early, early in there. And it's just, it's an amazing journey. And like you said, you know, the thing about charter schools is, is, um, when they don't work, they close. <laughs> There's, it, it's a promise to parents, and that's something that the movement embraces. The other thing is, it's you know, you mentioned that this is uh, this is an election season, and and you know, I formerly on this podcast we've talked about our charter schools on the uh, up against the wall or what's going on, all this negativity towards charter schools. The one of the things that I keep coming back to is that. Um, all of that comes down to politics. And I think that a lot of the people that talk about this big divide, we love charters, we hate charters, they're good, they're evil, they're, you know, they're wonderful for the system, they're destroying the system. These are people who 
who aren't the parents of charter school students. <laughs> and when you look around <laughs> at the at the schools across this country and the diversity of charter school models, the the diversity of, of approach that they bring, the the different kinds of people who choose and use charters, who start charters, it's really it's really a, a pretty pretty cool thing. So um, I, I agree with you. It's something that's here to stay and that's fundamentally in the past 25, 30 years changed how we think and talk about educational opportunity in this country. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Karega, uh, who has uh, not only been involved in his work doing research, but he's also acting president and CEO right now of that organization. And we'd like to give a shout out to Kip's Drive Academy in Atlanta, where I was a founding board member, and to all the teachers and my fellow uh, board members who helped to found it, including Ed Chang. There we go. Yay, National Charter Schools Week. Well, coming up, we've got somebody who is certainly capable of, of talking a lot about charter schools, but much, much more, of course. We're going to have um, Kaya Henderson. I probably don't even need to tell listeners who she is, but I will in just a minute. Anyway. And we're back with Kaya Henderson. So many of you know Kaya for her role as Chancellor of D.C. Public Schools from 2010 to 2016. Her tenure was marked by consecutive years of enrollment growth, the highest graduation rates in the district's history, and the largest growth of any urban district on the NAEP over multiple years. Henderson's previous work includes being a middle school Spanish teacher in the South Bronx, D.C. Executive Director for Teach for America, and the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at the New Teacher Project and Deputy Chancellor of the DCPS. She received a bachelor's degree in international relations and her Master of Arts in Leadership from Georgetown University. And of course, she has honorary degrees from Georgetown and Trinity Washington University. Kaya, thank you so much for spending some time with us on The Learning Curve today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here, Kara. Yeah, we're really, really happy to have you. Okay, so you know, we've been talking a lot about um, the current moment here on the learning curve. And certainly I think that you are well poised to reflect and speculate on some of that. But we want to start with some happy stuff first. <laughs> want to start with talking about <laughs> your time and your accomplishments as chancellor of D.C. public schools. I mean, the spotlight has been on D.C. in such positive ways in the last few years and in no small part due to your very hard work, your very good work, um, especially with growth on NAEP and, and TUDA scores, um, the reforms that you implemented were historic. Uh, what part of, when you reflect on your time in DCPS, what, what thing are you most proud of? What really makes you get up in the morning and say like, I did that and smile about it? I mean, there, I have a lot to be proud of. I think um, the thing that I'm most proud of is that we really changed teaching and learning for kids in the district, um, you know, through a combination of a concentration on getting and growing and keeping the best teachers and principals and implementing a really rigorous and joyful curriculum. Um, I think that um, we changed what kids are learning, learning in classrooms and how they're learning. And those changes have been systematized. They weren't dependent on, you know, who was at the top of the, uh, who was in the seat at the top of the job. We actually worked through the entire system. So those gains continue. Kids continue to learn rigorous and joyful work. Kids continue to 
show real academic gains. Even, you know, I've been gone now for almost four years and DCPS continues to grow academically. And I think that is the most important thing that I'm proud of. I think the second thing that I'm really proud of is we restored people's belief in a traditional public education system. I think when I got to DCPS in 2007, DCPS was the lowest performing urban school district in the country as measured by the NAEP. And literally people had just thrown their hands up at this traditional public school system. We had a very robust charter system and about a federal voucher program. And so people were just opting out of the district in droves. And nobody ever thought that DCPS could resuscitate itself. Um, but we got to a place where not only could we deliver for kids, but we engaged parents and students and the community members in the revitalization of DCPS. And so they have a sense of not just, uh, I think, confidence in the traditional public school system, but ownership. They helped set the agenda for what we were going to accomplish. They were part of the success. And so I think that is a very different, we left DCPS in a very different place than when we got there. Yeah, I think that I, the point you make is really well taken. One of the few places with such a robust charter sector in so many options, public, private, otherwise, where parents are actually, you know, really concertedly choosing, choosing the district option, which is a, a pretty amazing thing when you think about sort of the history of education policy, especially in the past 20 years. Um, one of the other things that you guys have done that's so notable and, and done well is in D.C., you know, every um, at least four year old, maybe you'll correct me. I think it's most three, three year olds too, have have access to publicly funded preschool in a way that parents are choosing as well. Now, I, I want to know a little bit about, you know, the difference that you think that makes and how it's doing. But I also want to ask you about this current moment, because one of the things that we know is that, you know, um, publicly funded preschool was really on the increase before the Great Recession. <laughs> and that once that recession hit, states really started to pull back, that preschool is always as important as it is. One of the things that um, that states find easiest to do away with, quite, quite frankly. Um, and so I'm curious to know about what you see as the role of preschool in D.C.'s success and preschool access in D.C.'s success and whether or not um, you are frightened about the current moment and what it could mean for early childhood education. So I think that um, that our universal pre-K program was absolutely instrumental in part of the success of D.C. public schools on a number of fronts. First of all, um, you know, those were kids who we got to work with from, you know, from the time that they were three or four-year-olds. Um, when I left DCPS, um, I want to say 70, 72% of our three-year-olds were in all-day school and 90-something percent of our four-year-olds. And so imagine being able to work with a set of students from the time they are three. When we triangulated those kids' test scores, um, when they got to the third grade and the fourth grade, in the fifth grade, we saw much greater uh, academic progress with those kids who we'd had over a long period of time, as opposed to kids who we just got in kindergarten or first grade. And so there was the academic underpinnings of having kids longer. I think uh, it absolutely helped with enrollment as well. Um, for 40 years, BCPS has seen decline, consecutive years of declining enrollment. Um, but when families, especially families who uh, were new to D.C. public schools, when they started with their kids in, in pre-K-3 and pre-K-4, they became invested 
in our elementary schools. They became invested in our school system and we were able to cultivate deep relationships with them so that they stayed over time and helped to stave off some of the enrollment decline. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the universal pre-K program also had significant impact on um, families' ability to, to earn money because they weren't worried about where their kids were all day. And I just, I, it just had incredibly um, cumulative effects across the city. And what I would say is um, I'm not worried about it going away in D.C. because I think this is a, a very clear example of where leadership matters. There were a number of people who made universal pre-K possible in D.C., and I don't want to take away from any of them. But uh, Mayor Vincent Gray was a champion uh, from the time he, before he became mayor, actually, when he was chair of the city council, universal pre-K was his issue. He put a stake in the ground on it. He made sure that it was funded. When he became mayor, he saw it through and ensured that we continued to expand seats until we could accommodate all of our three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And this is a place where political leadership, political will, he built coalitions to make sure that those, you know, that that, that would not fray in times of, of, of economic unrest. And so I'm not worried about universal pre-K in DC. I am worried about universal pre-K or, or early childhood education in a lot of other places, because I don't think that everybody really recognizes how critical it is to your overall K-12 education landscape. Yeah, I think that that's, that's very, very well put. You know, it, it's interesting, you, so you talk about parents being bought in and this being part of what drives the system as well. And and I, I take your point about, you know, parents, especially women, right, being able to, to engage in work when they have high quality universal pre-K mm-hmm. and daycare. And a lot of us are are appreciating that now more than ever, I would say. Um, but, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> you know, I am, I know that. Um, but as we uh, think about, so parents, you know, they might opt into the system in preschool and then stay with you. But regardless of where they start, I mean, even at the preschool level, parents have a lot of choices. They can choose from charter school options. They can choose from traditional district options. And then D.C. also has, as you mentioned at the outset, um, a voucher program, a federally funded voucher program. Can you talk a little bit about if any, the tensions between those three sort of structural approaches to, to doing school or to or to structuring school, I should say. And um, if are there tensions and, and what are they? Are they are they productive? Uh, are there any any barriers, do you think? Um, I think I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, there's I think, that. <laughs> uh, but I, from my from. From my perspective, I think that um, these three sectors, uh, known as the tri-sector initiative, I think uh, the tri-sector initiative was built, in fact, to create tension um, with the traditional public school system. The traditional public school system was a bureaucracy. It was intractable. It was not serving kids well, and it had no incentive to do anything differently. And I think there were a set of people who believed that if you introduce competition through charter schools, um, that that would wake up DC public schools and get it to to at least get its act together and try to compete. Uh, there was also, um, to be very frank, a, a, a set of Congress people who decided that this would be a great place to experiment with vouchers. The voucher program was not something that um, that was universally uh, requested in DC. 
uh, and many people will tell you that it was foisted upon the city by Congress. Whatever, however you interpret the history, at the end of the day, we had these three sectors. And I think what I would say is the initial thought about competition, I'm not sure that the, the presence of the charter district, uh, charter schools incited competition. I think people will say that now because of where DCPS was, but for 15 or 16 years, we had charters and DCPS wasn't competing, didn't care, didn't, you know, continue to be mediocre and, and wasn't really moving. Um, and I think what really changed for the traditional public schools was um, the mayoral takeover, um, the freedom to do some things that we had not been able to do before and completely different leadership. I think at the same time, um, you know, we were con continually aware of the fact that charters were there and, and, and parents were choosing them. And, you know, as a, as a public school parent at the time, we made the choice to enroll uh, one of our kids in a charter as well, because fundamentally, I believe that parents should have the choice to choose whatever is best for them. But my job at the traditional public school system was to build a set of schools that parents would choose to, to, be, uh, to be, you know, a, a viable, solid option for parents. And I think we did that. And I think over time, when I, when I think about the 20 or so years or 20 something years that we've had uh, at least charters and, and traditional and, and now more recently vouchers, I, I, I don't know that the competition is the thing that, that made us improve. And in fact, I think if we weren't so busy competing, uh, we might have been able to cooperate differently. When I look at the landscape in DC right now, we have lots of choices, but we also have, I'll leave out vouchers just because so few kids are in the voucher program. But when I look at our traditional public school system and our charter school system, we, we've created two very similar systems of schools. We both have a handful of schools that are excelling. We both have a handful of schools that really need some transformation. And we both have, both sectors have a number of schools in the middle. And so now we have, when you look at the number of schools that we have for the number of kids we serve, it's twice as much as any other similarly situated jurisdiction. Uh, we're spending probably double as much uh, as any other jurisdiction with about 90,000 kids. Um, and I'm not exactly sure. I, I'm, I'm sure that parents have more choice. I'm sure that, you know, things have improved. I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. I think we have the opportunity to change that. And I think when you look at some of the new ways that charters and traditionals are collaborating, I think we'll be able to, to see um, some more progress and some more efficiencies. But I think that the system still needs some overall work to figure out whether or not we're um, deploying our resources in the most strategic ways possible for our young people. Hi, Kaya. This is Gerard. Glad uh, that you're joining us. I'm glad to be here. Good. So you did a great job of talking about D.C. Uh, and the politics. And people who never lived there are very unfamiliar how different D.C. schooling and bureaucracy is just because of its nature. Uh, in a previous life, in the late 1990s, I actually used to work with D.C. public schools. Uh, Arlene Ackerman at the time was a superintendent, and I was her legislative liaison. So I had to spend time on Capitol Hill. Sure spend time working with the city council. In fact, at the point where they were talking about the three sector initiatives and the term plantation politics 
uh, was something used to describe the relationship <laughs> between Congress and the people of DC. And I think you've hit on a number of those points. As someone who took over the, the realm as the leader of the school system, discuss how you navigated the bureaucratic and political minefields that inhibit so many uh, urban superintendents just across the board, but particularly in a place like DC. You know, Gerard, I remember I was, I was, uh, I think I was leading Teach for America DC when Arlene was uh, the superintendent. And I remember when she quit and she said, I just have too many bosses. I have to report to too mm -hmm. many people. Um, and she was right. She had a school board to report to. She had a city council to report to, a mayor to report to, a Congress of the United States of America to report to. Um, and it is impossible to do this job when you have to please all of these different masters. And I think the thing that was very different in my case was I was able to lead under mayoral control where there was one point, one decision maker, and that was the mayor. Now, I also had to testify in front of Congress and I had to um, testify in front of the city council and, and navigate those politics. But there was a very clear, the buck stops the mayor and I. And that, I think, allowed us to get a lot of things done. I think um, one of the ways that I thought about politics was, you know, I would say to my team all the time, these are not my schools. These are our schools. All of these stakeholders actually own these schools. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what are each, what is each of these bodies concerned about? How do we make sure that they have the information that they need to feel comfortable with what we're doing? How do we give them the opportunity to actually co-create with us? To, we don't have all of the answers. We have some expertise. Other folks have some expertise. How do we bring them into, um, into the work that we're trying to do? Um, and, and, you know, how do we make this a partnership? And I've, I've always operated in, in partnership. And I think that um, people, I think, you know, navigating the politics is much easier when you actually believe that these other people have a role to play in the work that you're doing. Um, and so I went out of my way to build deep relationships with all of these different constituencies. Um, I spent a lot of time with each and every city council member um, to the point that I understood what their issues were. I could let them know when things were happening beforehand. Um, I met with the mayor weekly and could pick up the phone and text or talk to him or her. I worked for three different mayors um, <laughs> at any time. Um, and, you know, I worked really closely with the community. And so even when the politics weren't exactly going my way, I was able to leverage um, many of our community relationships to help us get things done. I think seeing, you know, leadership as a series of partnerships and what it takes to cultivate those relationships um, are what helped me navigate the sort of murky politics of, of school district leadership. And as you know well, leadership is about a personal touch, uh, where some people will use a thumb up, some will use a thumb in the eye, and people do it for different reasons. You know, <laughs> <laughs> your approach focused on relationship building diplomacy, as you just mentioned. You talked a lot about school buildings, uh, principals and teachers. Uh, there was, you know, at one point, a lot of uh, consternation about how teacher contracts would be shaped. But you took an approach that may have been different, not only from your predecessor, but some other school leaders. 
talk to us about why you use a management style that you use to get things done where some other people may have chosen to use the thumb in a different way. So I, I think there are two things, Gerard. First of all, I mean, my management style is reflective of who I am, of my okay. values, of how I was raised, of how I walk around in the world. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Um, I want, I want, I want people on, to be happy. I want people to have a good time. I want people to... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I will work hard and we'll get it done, but I, I really, I think that people are most motivated um, by joy and challenge. And, and so that's what I brought to the table. Um, I, I genuinely like people. I want to know, I'm nosy. I want to know what your story is. I want to know why, why are you angry? Why are you screaming at me? I can depersonalize you know, the, the anger and the fire to get deeper into, you know, what happened and figure out how we can work together to solve that. Um, and so on the one hand, I, I feel like I could only bring the kind of leadership that I was, that was, you know, authentic to who I am. At the same time, I think that depending on where an organization is in its trajectory, um, it needs different kinds of leadership at different times. And so, when we got to DC public schools, it was broken. It needed to be completely and totally dismantled, disrupted, pulled apart. Um, and, and I would not have been the right person for that leadership role at that time. Um, a lot of people criticized my predecessor and my friend, Michelle Ree. Um, and they say, oh, you know, phew, we, we like you much better than we like Michelle. You got so many things done. There were things that I couldn't do as chancellor if Michelle hadn't done what she did as my predecessor. And so I think Michelle was Michelle is tough as nails. Michelle, you know, is willing to do hard things. Michelle um, cares if you like her, but you know, her mission is you know foremost for her. And I think that she brought the right disposition to be able to pull the system apart um, and allow us to begin to put put it back together. And I think my leadership came at a time where, you know, the revolution part, the fighting in mm -hmm. the street was over. And mm -hmm. it was time now for institution building. And I could take the ideals of the revolution and begin to build the long-term institutions. That was the right organizational moment for my kind of leadership. But I think that we have this idea that every leader needs to be the same. There couldn't be a, there couldn't be a Kaya Henderson and what, I achieved if Michelle Ree hadn't done what she had done. Good points. This is more to today, a little more personal. Tell us what you're doing now, what keeps you up at night in a good way, because you're always excited about your work. I am always excited about my work. Um, when I, after, I was at DCPS for almost 10 years, and I just needed to step away from it and from the U.S. education scene uh, and so I've spent the last two plus years uh, working at Teach for All, uh, which is the international umbrella organization of 53 countries um, that run Teach for America-like programs. So there's Teach for Morocco and Teach for China and Teach for Uganda, and Teach for Haiti and Teach for France and Teach for India and all kinds of things in 53 countries around the world. Um, and what I do there is I help our communities around the world um, think about how they come together and set a shared vision for what they want for their kids and then work on it together. 
I work on sort of what we call community impact or collective impact. Um, and so it's been lovely to be able to take many of the lessons that I learned and the way that I led at DC Public Schools to places near and far and help other people think about and activate transformation for their kids and their communities. Um, I also uh, have my own consulting practice and that keeps me in touch with what's happening in the United States. And so I consult to school districts, uh, I coach superintendents, I work with state departments of education, I work with foundations, nonprofit organizations, charter management organizations, and I help with everything from executive leadership uh, to community, uh, community engagement, strategic planning, accountability, teacher evaluation, collective bargaining strategy, all kinds of stuff. People just call and say, can you help with X or Y or Z? Uh, and my team and I do that. Um, and then I'm serving on a number of really interesting boards that help to grow my um, uh, help to grow my perspective. I'm learning I'm on an education technology board, which has been really important in this particular moment. I also serve on the board of one of the largest poverty fighting or the largest poverty fighting organization in New York City, um, the Robin Hood uh, Foundation where mm -hmm. we just raised $115 million for COVID relief in, here in New York City. Um, and so I, I have my hands in a number of things. I'm in the international space. I'm doing a bunch of consulting. And then my board work keeps me busy. Glad to have so, you in all those spots. Yeah, not not quite sure when you sleep, <laughs> but but we'll take it. <laughs> and, and, you know, aside from um, co-hosting a podcast with Gerard Robinson, I feel like your teach for all gig sounds like a dream job. That's <laughs> just really, really um, I feel interesting. Very, I, I feel so lucky. I literally, until a couple months ago, got to just fly around the world, be in deep relationship with communities, you know, urban, rural, suburban, all in every corner of the world, and literally talk, have the same conversation. What do you want for your kids? Who are the most important people to delivering that? How? What's the role of parents? What's the role of students? How do we come together to, to change things for your kids' education? And it's riveting that um, each context is so incredibly unique, yet and still parents all around the world, no matter what their level of education is or isn't, no matter how much money they have or don't have, no matter where they live or don't live, they all want the same thing for their kids. And so that has been a really um, reinforcing idea. Yeah, they they sure do. And and you know, shame on anybody who who assumes that a parent's background Absolutely. affects their desires or expectations for their children. Um, Kaya, thank you so much for Absolutely. spending time with us today. Everybody, you know who she is. <laughs> Kaya Henderson, it's such a pleasure to to listen and learn from you and to get to chat with you a little bit and um we, you know, we're, we're always watching, always, always reading about what you're doing. And we look forward to talking with you again soon. Uh, thanks so much. So good to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, fantastic. Take care. The tweet of the week comes from Utopia, May 11th, 2020. Children are returning to schools in countries that are weeks or months ahead of the U.S., and it's taken from an article written by Stephen Morell, May 8th, 2020, uh, by Edtopia. 
And it references a report that was released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention that was setting guidelines for opening child care programs, day camps, and K-12 schools in other countries. And they're going to do so in three phases. Phase one, restrict to children of essential workers in areas needing significant mitigation. Phase two, expand to all children with enhanced social distancing measures. Phase three, remain open for all children with social distancing measures. I take this just as an announcement of what people on the other side of the pond are doing as it relates to opening schools. I don't take it as a slap in the face for what we're not doing in the United States. Uh, some states are quietly and strategically moving forward with plans where other states are much more uh, vocal about their decision to say, let's just halt and look maybe at a different time. I do think there are lessons that we as Americans can learn from other people. It's often a one-way street. Maybe there are some things that we can look at what's going on uh, in Europe and around the world just for nuggets of uh, truth and maybe some ideas on what we can do differently. For me, it's just good to read uh, what other people are doing in other places. gives us an opportunity to figure out uh, what's working uh, on our side. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I just wish we would spend mo so much more time <laughs> talking to folks uh, around the world. I mean, to, to the point that uh, Kaya Henderson made, right? Just just we were talking to her just now. There's there's a lot to learn, and especially in, in this moment. Um, and coming up next week, uh, somebody who's got a lot to teach us as well, we are going to have with us, and she's been with us before, Carrie McDonald, Senior Education Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and the author of unschooled, raising curious, well-educated children outside of the conventional classroom. I am curious to know uh, what Carrie thinks of Zoom, Gerard. <laughs> 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 going to be among the first questions. <laughs> she so. has been more involved in Zoom probably in the last 14 weeks than maybe <laughs> the last five, six years. Oh, anyway, well, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, it'll be great. And I look forward to talking to you again next week, too, my friend. So until then, take care. Take care.